I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like this music? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Hey, up, you pop crazy youngsters, and welcome back to part two of Chart Music number sixty-five. I'm Al Needham. He's Neil Kulkarna. Hello there. And that one over there is rock expert David Stubbs. You. <laughs> and chaps, we find ourselves on the horns of a dilemma, don't we? Because mm. this episode that we're about to get stuck into, it starts at the same time as ITV actually having something pretty fucking major league on, mm. which is the World Cup semi-final preamble. And that brings up the question, at what point in this episode, if ever... Do you break and switch over? You know what? I think I recall exactly what I actually did. Um, Because obviously no remote controls in this period. No, Um, no, I I was just sat right by the telly, probably with my fingers annoyingly on the buttons. And I would have been flicking between the two like a cunt. Oh, man. And and my my sister and mum, who probably wanted to watch Top of the Pops... Um, would have only put up with about 10 minutes of this yeah. before banishing me from sitting next to the telly. So I probably sat there in a foul mood for the last 20 minutes of Top of the Pops whilst it finished. Mm. Um, but were it my choice, I think I'd have kept flicking until the teams had come out and then I'd be firmly in ITV land. Because I do believe, looking at this, uh, BBC's aware of what the pop craze youngsters, or at least, you know, a sizable proportion of them, are going to do. And I can tell them they've front-loaded this episode like a bastard. <gasps> Yeah, mm, yeah, mm, mm. good thinking. Virtually all of the good stuff is right at the beginning. I mean, the first ten minutes, fucking hell! Oh, indeed. Mm. And, and I think if I, um, if my my mum and sister hadn't done that, I would have missed out on a moment that we're going to come to discuss later. That we oh, yes. all was major and talked about the next day. So I'm sort of glad they did. David, do you remember where you were? I would have sat astride, you know, these very horns. But unfortunately, I I don't quite remember what I actually did. I do certainly remember watching that semi-final. Mm. I was as pop-crazed as um, any youngster in 1982. You know, I was was well into me top of the pops um, because, you know, new pop was about to radicalise the world, you know, um, upgrade our sensibilities as a country, as a culture, etc., etc. So, yeah, I was well there for top of the pops. I think, actually, I was in the end inclined to think, well, you know, Top of the Pops is every week, World Cup every four years, you know. Mm. What would Top of the Pops have done, I wonder, if England had actually made that semi-final? Hmm. Oh. Maybe, I think they would have rescheduled. I think they would have Mm. stuck it on half an hour earlier. 
Um, yeah, or just said to Zoo, look, we've got to get eyeballs. Just turn up naked. <laughs> Everybody performing on this episode does it bollock naked. That's mm. the only way anyone's going to watch this episode of Top of the Pops. Would have been interesting. It mm. would have been interesting. It's difficult talking about this Top of Pops to a certain extent because this night in my life, I mean, like for many of us, it's a night of kind of heartbreak really, mm. be- because of what happens to Batistan, uh, mm. Schumacher, etc. I'll never forget that. I'm not saying yeah. it's my first lesson that justice isn't real, but mm. <laughs> it was heartbreaking, that. It really was. Yeah. The strutting Schumacher. I think all my Germanophobia that I thought I kind of got rid of by listening to Kraftwerk rose back again to the fore. I was back like a small boy reading Warlord and magazines like that. Yeah. <laughs> Eat that, Fritz. All right, then, pop craze youngsters. It's time to go way back to July of 1982. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Yeah, sort of. What? There is, um... <laughs> well... <laughs> what are you getting at, David? In a sense. Well, I think in a particular... In a certain sense, I have been on top of the pops. Not what? in person. But it turns out I was reading recently. So when I used to do the talk, talk, talk section mm. in Melody Maker mm. in the early 90s, of course, it was the rise of the shaman and particularly Mr. C. Mm-hmm. And his god-awful doggerel <laughs> raps accompanied by a finger-waggling nonsense, you know, that were about as welcome in those songs as a trombone solo, basically. Mm. You know, and um, really, you know, there's just appalling, appalling rubbish. And I just wrote a sketch every week that was about, like, the shaman featuring that irritating little blonde man in which he keeps bursting into doggerel. And the other say, shut up, you irritating little twat, you know. Uh, and that was the gist mm. of it, really, you know. And it was just an excuse to sort of um, compose spontaneous doggerel, supposedly emanating from the mouth of Mr. C. <laughs> Sportingly, we allowed him to do his own sort of retort, right. uh-huh. um, you know, which was bloody <laughs> awful. It was worse than any of the parodies I wrote. <laughs> anyway, you know, fair dues. You know, he, he got his, you know, he got, he, he got his right to reply. But um, anyway, it turns out that he did take these things rather to heart and, in fact, also took them rather closely to another organ. <laughs> really? So what he apparently said is that when he appeared on, I think it was Ebenezer Good, what he did is he cut up the um, articles I'd you know, the pieces that I'd written, the piss takes, and he stuffed them down his codpiece, you know, <laughs> down the front of his trousers. And so, essentially, my writings, you know, my, my work was nestled around the penis of Mr. Good C. Good Lord. While it was on top of the pops. And so, in a sense, I feel that i kind of been on. Yeah, you have. I, I, I'd argue yeah. that. Well, this changes everything. <laughs> it does, yeah. You're going to have to totally change that catchphrase out. I know, exactly, yeah, yeah. Bloody hell. <laughs> that, that's mental, because if he'd have gathered together all the fucking articles slagging him off, he, he'd look like a, 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 an inverse <laughs> Rod Stewart played by Kenny Everett, wouldn't he? <laughs> Good God. Yeah. Well, that's ended chart music for me now. <laughs> What's the thinking about? Is it something like, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger mm. or gives my penis strength or something? I don't yeah. know. It's a very strange thing to do, really. Well, w- when we actually get round to Ebenezer Good on chart music, I'll just send him the fucking episode on a memory stick and he can stick it up his arse or something. I don't know. <laughs> They've been on top of the pops yeah. more than we have, apart from David being stuffed into Mr. C's crotch. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Clarification. Look- <laughs> 
7.30pm on July the 8th, 1982, and Top of the Pops, by now firmly into the Yellow Hurl era, is dealing with the challenge of ITV actually putting on something decent for a change. The World Cup, which is currently reaching a crescendo in Spain. Unlike the last World Cup, where the pop craze youngsters were actually denied one whole episode of Top of the Pops so the BBC could screen the opening ceremony and the same nil-nil draw between West Germany and Poland that ITV had put on, the third channel of Bagsid all the Thursday night games, which I believe demonstrates Top of the Pops' place in the pantheon of BBC programming. Don't you, chaps? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you think that was a deliberate man- I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Top of the Pops, it's currently pulling down just over 10 million viewers every week. And, Mm -hmm. you know, with the addition of a new programme that we'll discuss later on, they pretty much have a stranglehold on the youth audience on a Thursday evening. And ITV know that. For years, they've been putting on any old bought-in American TV movie shit in the knowledge that people like my dad will be forced to watch it. If you're below a certain age, you're watching BBC One on Thursday. Thursday nights. Yeah. You have to. All of this occasion by the lack of remotes. I mean, even my mate who had a remote. You know those remotes before remotes that were built yeah. into the telly and you could pull them out and they had a cord? Mm. Um, yeah. Even that didn't quite solve these issues. No. And this was back at a time when, you know, when you watch a game, say if you watched a football game on ITV now, you know they'd squeeze in, what, six, seven ad breaks within about half an hour? Yeah. In between every single bit of pre-game sort of stuff. Mm. Then it was a pretty much clear run. I don't mm. remember them going to ad breaks just before kickoff. I remember the no. run from the players coming on to kickoff, uninterrupted by ads. So yeah, it would have been a it would have been a thorny issue. You're right, Neil. Remote's my arse. I remember when I was about <laughs> eight or nine. I got what my parents claimed to be a remote control car, <laughs> which was on a fucking wire. And yeah. I made the big mistake of bragging on to my mates about my remote control car. And I brought it out, man. And they just coated me right down. Because you had to stay like three foot away from it. But yeah, you had to follow it around. That's that's no good. Car on a lead. But technology yeah. remotes from there. Do you remember in the apartment, that scene where Jack Lemon Lemon sits down to his TV dinner and he, and he has a little kind mm. of remote control there and he keeps flicking and it keeps the adverts keep coming on. You know, friends, do you mm. suffer from loose gentures? You know, and he gets fed up in the end and he just turns it off. But, but yeah, the technology was there in 1960, so... Yeah, but it was just a clicky one thing, wasn't it? You know, either forward or back. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. But mind you, that didn't really matter in this country because you're only two clicks <laughs> away from the programme you wanted. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jesus. But in terms of, like, lack of choice and in terms of, like, lack of opportunity, to see pop music these were the very very final years of that really you know I mean it's not long yeah, yeah. the tube and things like that or videos as well you know and th- all those kind of things mm. just around the corner lack of remotes as well it was another layer in which um, sort of you could exert hierarchy in a household or, or a family mm. so the youngest had to get up and fucking change over. Uh, um, yeah. Nobody else. Yeah. Whoever the youngest was in the room had to do that. That was their job. Also, affordability of TVs. I mean, it was considered pretty much upper middle class to have more than one telly. But, um, mm. you know, they, they can't, and in 1970, a telly cost 100 quid. I mean, today yeah. they cost mm. uh, like 150, you know. It's, it's, um, and it was, you know, it was a 1970 telly. You know, yeah. Even the Royal Family rented their telly. Really? Well, yeah, there was an episode of The Crown, I remember. They were talking about, you know, they were renting their telly, yeah. So, Fucking hell. Yeah, my family, my mum and dad, poor mugs, they were the last <laughs> people in the world still to be renting their, their telly. <laughs> you know, I think eventually they came around and took pity. And they came around and said, like, look, just keep it. You know, you've been giving us, like, 20 quid a month now. <laughs> it's 1987 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> 
Who were they with? Radio Rentals or DER? Or Radio Fusion? I, I, I think it was Radio Rentals, actually. Right. Could have been Rumbleized. Mm. Of course, yes. <laughs> Saves you money and serves you right. Grumbleized. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to imagine now, chaps, but BBC and ITV's coverage of the 1982 World Cup, patchy as fuck. Mm. After they agreed not to duplicate matches as they'd done before, mm. ITV bags in the opening ceremony in the first game. But as that first game was Argentina versus Belgium, they chose not to screen it. Do you know what they put on instead? Go on. It was a Sunday evening, so we got Sing to the Lord, which was shaking <laughs> songs of praise, Heart to Heart, and a repeat of Mind Your Language. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, de- denying the nation the opportunity to have a good gloat at the world champions mm. getting beaten. Mm. Presume, I mean, presumably a Falklands related thing that they would. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. Much like the cancelling of Tchaikovsky of late. The war was still going on. Yeah, yeah. That's remarkable, Al. I didn't know that at all. I didn't know that that Mm. kind of... not. You wouldn't exactly call it censorship. I suppose it's ITV being careful Mm. about the Daily Mail or something. Yeah. But that is is truly bizarre, isn't it? Uh, And as the first round kicked in, you know, we quickly discovered that neither the BBC or ITV were particularly asked about the World Cup, apart from our boys' games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which meant that we missed out on seeing Algeria beating West Germany. Oh, yeah. Hungary battering El Salvador Mm. 10-1. The Anschluss game, the disgrace of Gijon, if you will, where West Germany and Austria rigged a Uh, 1-0 game to shit on Algeria. uh And we didn't see any of the games in England's group which didn't feature England. Sorry, but that's shit. That's yeah. unbelievable, isn't it? They would have had highlights packages, presumably, but yeah. But not yeah, live, but you yeah. want to see the fucking oh, thing course. live, man. It's yeah, the World yeah. Cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's what was on in competition to top of the pops over the course of the World Cup. You know, just let me know your mm-hmm. thoughts and, uh, and what you would have plumped for that evening. So June the 17th, Northern Ireland versus Yugoslavia. Yeah, 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 definitely. Because, you know, we had a handy team in Northern Ireland. Definitely. Mm. I'd, I'd, I'd watch that. June the 24th. Yugoslavia versus Honduras. Yeah, I think I'd have swerved yeah. that and gone for TOTP. Yeah. yeah. And last week, July the 1st, this is when the uh, the second group stages kicked in. Mm-hmm. USSR versus Belgium. Mm. Bear in mind that yeah. the top of the pops is a 40-minute yeah, concern exactly, yeah. now, so course, you're only going to yeah. miss the first 10 minutes of all yeah, of those games. Well, that's it, yeah. But you are yeah. going to miss Jimmy Greaves talking about mm. what's gone on before. Last 10 minutes, I would have known what number one was. Yeah. So if I didn't like number one, it would have been the football. Mm. Penultimate to the number one, it's, it would all have hinged on that. Yeah. And if, you know, fucking the old sailor came on or something like that, I'd be straight over to the football, I think. Yeah. Your host for this episode is Kid Jensen. No, sorry, David Jensen nowadays, mm. who is firmly bedded in at the 8 to 10 weekday slot on Radio 1. And tonight he's on between Walters Weekler and John Peel. Even though he's been there since last autumn, when he was tempted back from the Turner Broadcasting System in Atlanta, it's still being very much seen as a good thing and a bit of a coup for the nation's favourite. In the telepages of today's Daily Mirror, Stan Sayer writes, I know our David has been back from America for a while, but it's never too late to pay a compliment. I reckon he's one of the best presenters of this programme, and the lad was badly missed by us while he was in America, making his millions. Hmm. Chaps, it's very rare for a former Radio 1 disc jockey to get back in after they've left, and they certainly don't end up bagging a regular weekday slot when they do, but, you know, the former kid has booked the trend here hasn't he yeah 
because we like him. The listeners like him, the viewers like him, and the people that he works with like him as well. Mm. And he's he's dealing with the comeback. Fine and Daniel. Yeah. He's a great presenter of this yeah. episode. Yeah, I'd be slightly different. I think he fluffs a couple of lines or doesn't... Well, not exactly fluffs lines, but delivers one or two slightly anticlimactic lines. I, I don't perhaps quite... I mean, I agree, yeah, he's a nice man. <laughs> he's a safe pair of hands. He's a sort of a decent sort, etc., etc. And I'm sure that he has a kind word for the tea ladies, etc., etc., <laughs> in, in the corridors there and what have you. <laughs> but really, when we're talking about him being a great presenter of Top of the Pops, it's more about the, the, the least worst, perhaps. And really... If the bar is set so low as that he's not actually a paedophile, a sex pest, or a helicopter yeah. wanker, it's <laughs> not that I want to hurdle, I would say. No. Also, what the hell is going on with his shirt this evening? Mm. It's got that weird sort of black and white image of the Queen yes. on the front. I, it's, I assume it's the Queen. And then this random collage of sort of glitter and abstract art. It looks, It just looks like... You know, something that Matisse would have vomited or something. It's, it's strange. It's just—it looks just like one of them shirts Robert Mugabe would wear, but instead of having his own face on it, he's got the Queen. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned the semiotics of my trousers earlier on. <laughs> yes. I suppose, yeah, there's a sort of lost sense of significance about what this shirt might have meant at that point in 1982. I can see, but mm. it just looks bloody mm. atrocious now. Really, you know, he does look atrocious, but at the same time, I think he's slightly aware that he's getting a bit old for mm. this gig. There's nothing necessarily. Oh, have a laugh at me and my cheeky. Oh, no. shirt. But at least he's sort of self-aware to a degree that you're right, David. It is a low bar that he's not a totally disgraceful and contemptible human being, and therefore we think he's one of the best presenters. But he's no nonsense, strictly biz, very convivial. And where, where so many other presenters, you know, um, you know, all the way even to the sort of new breed that have been introduced in this period, who are ostensibly one of us, like mm. Peter Powell mm. or something. You know, even they would use the intro here to sell their own brand. No. Jensen never does that. And he, he does make you comfortable. He removes that always discomforting kind of rub between Top of the Pops being a show for us to enjoy pop music and a show for DJs to fucking show off and yeah. sell themselves. He is just the announcer. And I, th- I think at this stage, I think he's starting to think, Maybe I'm getting a bit long in the tooth of this. Now, chaps, I've done a bit of digging into his time with Ted Turner, and it it doesn't look like he got out of his depth at TBS, and he certainly wasn't slinking back to the BBC with his tail between his legs. Ah. From his autobiography, Kid Jensen for the record, quote... Bob Wussler, president of the mighty CBS TV in the US, was in London on business for a few days. Turning on the TV in his hotel room in 1980, he caught the end of an open university programme on the subject of heroes. It was hosted by me. There is a lot of luck in any broadcasting career. The opportunity appealed to the little boy in me who had grown up watching the grainy TV pictures as John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth in 1962. The chance to work for the guy who helped to produce that historic footage was unmissable. Having read his latest idea of a 24-hour news channel, I knew his parent company was where I needed to be. Increasingly, as I grew older, Radio 4 and LBC had become part of my listening repertoire and I wondered about exploring a more challenging opportunity. On my Radio Luxembourg programme, I had been a newsreader of sorts, but there's a gulf of difference between screaming a few hurried rip-and-read scripts from the Daily Mirror, punctuated by overdramatic Morse code effects, and delivering an envisioned news programme to viewers in Canada and America. 
I also preferred to forget the story in a luxy bulletin about the Middle East in which I declared without realising that lesbian troops rather than Lebanese troops would gather in. <laughs> I don't know, le- lesbian troops would scare me more than Lebanese troops, I think. Mm. <laughs> so he discharged his duties at Radio 1, retired the Kid Jensen name forever, and he relocated to Atlanta and started off as the host of a Hearts of Gold-type show called Nice People. <laughs> I'd love to see an episode of that. Well, he, well he's a nice person, isn't he? So he, he is, he is. Nice. Who, who's going to be nicer on that programme than Kid Jensen? Oh, I'd yeah. like to see them. Yeah. He then settled in as the host of the 10 o'clock news and he got all the fucking perks. He, he got a house with a pool, mm-hmm. two cars, even though he couldn't drive. He ended up working with George Bush Sr.'s voice coach because they thought he was sounding a bit too English. Yeah. So, yeah, all seemed well in the Jensen Garden. He, he was just about to be sent to Iran to cover the release of the American embassy hostages. Unfortunately, he was starting to be pushed by CNN to become their entertainment producer which really didn't appeal at all to him so back to the book one saturday afternoon when i was shuffling my scripts and preparing to deliver a bulletin between the wrestling and baseball i heard my name being called looking up i saw the familiar faces of all three members of the police (laughs) this was at the height of their world fame with don't stand so close to me topping the charts what are you doing here asked sting You belong in Britain. (laughs) The irony of those words coming from a man living in a New York penthouse was not lost on either of us, but his words struck a chord. Mm. Another taste of home was a stock report which crept into my news programme about how Dallas had emerged as the world centre for the radio jingle industry which included the familiar Radio 1 melodies, followed by an interview with my old boss, Johnny Bailing. Taken aback after seeing the feature in my own programme, I confessed it seemed a little being in the twilight zone. Then the phone rang early one morning. At the other end crackled the familiar tones of Johnny and Paul Burnett. They had been talking about me and decided to say hello and tell me I was missed. I miss them too. Even hearing Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street reminded me of a crowded London tube. After a visit from Doreen Davis, the matriarch of Radio 1, he was invited back to the station and slotted into the early evening weekday slot and immediately ushered back into the talent pool of Top of the Pops alongside the likes of Peter Powell, John Peel, Dave Lee Travis, Simon Bates and Jingle Nonce OBE. (laughs) And this is his eighth appearance since his American hiatus and Mm -hmm. it's been an effortless transition back to the routine hasn't it chaps yeah yeah it's as if he's never been away that's kind mm. of heartrending that the fact that he got um he got tempted back by seeing a thing about jingles yeah. the thing is that whole trajectory from uk radio one to you know a major news network in america just thank fuck it was in yeah because if if it had been like, mm. edmunds or something oh. um, because in a job like that working for an american news network you're going to come into contact with people in power ultimately mm. the thought of noel edmunds coming into contact with various conservative forces in america in the 80s fuck knows where that could have ended up you know he had a go at it though when he hosted his own chat show in america for a while and how did mm. that go down not yeah. very well <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
<laughs> I think he stood in for someone for a couple of weeks, and yeah, he, he wasn't invited back. He must always be kept away from news, and if he was kept near and, American and news, other people, been, and other people, yeah. Hmm. But if he would have been near the corridors of power, as it were, that that would worry me intensely, and we may well be hmm. looking at a different future if that had happened. Thank well, fuck. Well, was- imagine if fucking Travis had, had read the news on CNN. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Colonel Gaddafi, what a pilchard. That earlier, that lesbian troops thing earlier on, it was Lebanese troops. I just wonder if mm. it was some sort of mental mm. Freudian or whatever type slip on um, Jensen's part, because, of course, Colonel Gaddafi did have his own Amazonian guard made up of this elite cadre of women. Oh. And I just wonder oh, if yes. you know, kid, you know, David Jensen thought, well, if they're in the army, there must be lesbians. And so lesbian troops, Lebanese, sounds a bit like Libya, you know. And oh, just, man, yeah, I'm not yeah. having that. You, you can't cast such aspersions on Kid Jensen, David. Oh, well, there's a whole big Golden Girls gag that relies on that. We need to find some Lebanese lesbians and see how they feel about it. <laughs> yeah. So if any of the pop-crazed youngsters out there are A, Lebanese, and B, <laughs> lesbians, get in touch. <laughs> And we begin this week's Music and Lights with this from Imagination. The syndromes pound, the coloured singles cascade, the numbers flash, that voice goes, and pink vinyl explodes all over your mum's carpet as we're hit with a knee on top of the pop's logo with Kid standing next to it, looking suitably early 80s compliant in white trousers and a red, gold and blue shirt, which probably cost your dad's weekly wage packet, with elephants on the sleeves and a portrait of the Queen beneath his rock and roll heart. (laughs) He invites us to another 40 minutes of hit sounds and visions before yielding the floor to the first act of the night. Imagine with music and lights. We've covered Imagination a couple of times on Chart Music and this, their fifth single, is the follow-up to Just an Illusion, which got to number two in April of this year, shamefully held off number one by Seven Tears by the Gumbay Dance Band. It's also the second cut from their second LP, In the Heat of the Night, which will be coming out in September, and it entered the chart at number 31 a fortnight ago, which led to a performance on Top of the Pops where Lee John decided to wear a massive silky JR hat, a diamond-shaped spangly breastplate, (laughs) and a pair of Flojo tights a full six years before the Seoul Olympics that left the nation wondering if his bollock would flop out of it, (laughs) angering dads of Albion in a way they could not articulate. (laughs) The following week, the single soared 26 places to number five. And although it's been a non-mover this week, that doesn't matter because it's imagination. And here they are again. And boys, we are off to an absolute flyer. Would you care to describe to the pop craze youngsters what imagination have come as this week? <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I made a few notes. Um, 
the first two words were absolutely ridiculous, but of course that's no. that's the point. But that's the point. No, 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 that's, that's the yes. point. They they should be, you know. They don't you don't want you know them to be tapered and restrained. But um, yeah, you got um, I think he's he's wearing like you know do you remember the Seinfeld episode about the puffy shirt? Mm. I don't want to be the pirate. Um, yeah, there's the, he's got that mm. the golden pantaloons, um, the sort of hat that Hyacinth Bucket would wear to a wedding. All of his combo, and the other guy, you know, mm. he's wearing a life jacket from some sort of 1980s super yacht. Um, and <laughs> this is what it should be the stuff of like you know. Arabic legend or whatever, you know, like, yes. you know, when yeah, I say yeah. ridiculous, I use it in a kind of non-pejorative sense, you know, that the, the, the price it would approve of. I mean, because the weird thing is, this is an era in which certainly I was, um, again, you know, semiotic trousers and all that, you know, and one mm. was very conscious, especially with suits, and, and I would have worn a suit or a shirt and tie every day at this point to university, mm. you know, never, never do since, you know, and it, it, was, it was very conscious of um, tapering down, you know, in contrast to the sort of flares and the sort of rockish excesses of the 19. 19- 70s but there was a lot of other nonsense you know going on in the 80s i mean imagination have a certain license but if you look across the rest of the crowd there i mean it's a menagerie of mistakes really it's a sea of errors you know and that that was all going on (laughs) at the same time and how we had the gore in the early 80s to sort of like laugh at the 70s as the decade that staff got because there was some pretty howlingly bad stuff like say imagination of course you know they 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 rise above it yes song wise they could never be accused of um straying from the formula but um but you know it's 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 great, isn't it? It's, it's a good formula. Know, that's right. that's it. the whole very point, good you know. Formula. And, and, and yeah. I, we all like to hear the sound of a mystic melody. And um, <laughs> hell yeah, <laughs> oblige. Yeah. They're amazing yeah. what they're wearing, I think. Mm, yeah. These aren't just shirts that are flouncy. Oh, no. They've looked at these shirts and, and seen spaces where they can add extra flounce. And, yes, and, and yes. they've packed it in. It, 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 yeah. It's yeah. fantastic. They are the best-looking people in the entire studio for this performance. Yeah. To the point, of course, where I got really fucking angry with the little city farm cunt looking like Oh, a, yes. You know, that guy looks like a Dexys groupie. He's got kind of braces yes. and kind of or pulled Bobby up. Ball. Yeah, Bobby Ball. He it's looks that, like a really flamboyant Bobby Ball, doesn't that's he? That's it. And he's <laughs> yes. dancing on imagination stage. Fuck off. Yes. That on is their Im- turf. How dare you? Yes. That is yeah. imagination stage, and they completely, mm. completely own it. Yeah. It's, it's like you say, Al totally off to a flyer there yeah. let's put it out there right now lee john looks like a sexy meringue doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah the e stands for extra exciting egg yeah. whites <laughs> and the thing, absolutely yeah he's yeah. basically nicks lady diana's train from the previous summer mm-hmm. and just put it on his hat the thing is there are, there are other people on his show tonight who are who think they look good and they look crap mm. um but i think the difference with imagination is they know the weight of what they're doing they know exactly Exactly what they're doing in yes. their sort of dance and their deportment, they know exactly what they are, and they, they, for that reason, they absolutely pull it off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, as a kid watching this, because I, I, I'd have been like about nine or ten watching this. Of course, now I see the joins, but for me, as a nine-year-old kid who who had his mind blown by just an illusion and, and mm. the first few mm. imagination tracks, yeah, yeah, and especially their appearances, I just assumed imagination walked about like this, you know, all the yes. time, like all day and all night. <laughs> they were dressed like this. I mean, of course, now looking at it i see how this entire routine would have been i don't know pounded out in pineapple dance studios the day before in a way and you know i can also see that they're, they're sort of pantomime miming of this because the vocal is actually not a loud one it's a, like a lot of imagination vocals it's a little sultry one but mm. they've got their big gobs opening yes. um, completely at variance with the tone of the vocal making the, the sort of miming a bit blatant but as a kid 
I'd have just loved this because this is what you want from a top of the pops performance. Nothing cool yeah. and therefore totally cool. Yes. Total gusto. And really, in a way, watching it now, you know, for the first time in a while, actually, this was one of the imagination songs that I think has probably slipped out of a lot of people's memory yes. in contrast to the big hitch, you know. Yeah. I think the performance, it covers up actually a really a great song, which is, a, it's, it's like a hymn to pop music. It, mm-hmm. and, and I like hymns to pop music. I like things like uh, Kylie's Can't Get You Out of My Head. And this is kind of like that. It's delivered like a lot of imaginations work at this period. Like there are kind of little pervy queer camp cousin group to Earth, Wind and Fire. Yes. The thing is, they're avoiding cliche, but also playing with cliche deliciously. And from mm. my current vantage point now, you can really appreciate, I think, what a, what a unique thing imagination were. They're yeah. not just a response Definitely. to American funk and soul and pop. They're also a uniquely British black postmodern response to a teenage mm. life spent yearning for both American sort of black pop's ease and style, but also those strange British eruptions of queerness and oddity into everyday life that watching Top of the Pops would have given you. And this is why Imagination, I think, go big. You know, unlike Central Line or Lynx or Beggar & Co., UK pop culture, much more than US pop culture, is a world in which your life can kind of change overnight and where a decision to wear... I don't know, revealing togas on TV can make the difference between being a star or not. And Lee, after so many years at the peripheries of fame, because he's done so many jobs before Imagination, you know, um, singing Waiter and all the rest, I think his past is really important. He dates the beginnings of his career in showbiz back to playing a snowflake in a primary school play um, in which his sister was a pixie. And he was a shy kid, used to sit in the corner, and, you know, act everything out in front of a mirror at home. And that shyness kind of gets knocked out of him when he moves to New York with his dad. And that leaves him with bits and bobs of kind of New York slang. He said himself in an interview that living in New York gave him an awareness of himself as a black person and a sort of Mm. big knowledge of songs from Broadway musicals. And that mix of show business and the street, I think, is really, really important. Yes. I I read an interview in Melody Maker, actually, January 1982, and Paolo Paolo Ewa asks Lee why they dress the way they do. Yes. And, he, you know, he says that visually, this is Lee talking, he says, especially on British television, you have three minutes to yourself, and in that three minutes, you have to create the biggest, most almighty impact ever. And if it isn't almighty, you're gone. Um, And Errol actually says as well in that interview, you know, we believe in being showbiz and glamour. And Lee actually talks about Sweet and Gary Glitter and things like that. You know, yeah, and I yeah. think that's really revealing. There's also a fantastic interview in 82 by Barney Hoskins, I think, in the NME, where Lee talks about the videos for Poison Arrow and yeah. Visage videos as being really inspirational to him. So when I saw Imagination for the first time on Top of the Pops, there was a similar sense of what the fuckness mm. that I've heard other people talk about when they talk about, say, when they saw Bowie or they saw Bolan or they f- saw Adam Ant yeah. for the first mm. time. Yeah. Yeah. In, in a sense, it fucks them in terms of developing a long career because mm. what they can't do is settle into comfort and familiarity. They have yeah. to keep giving us these eye-popping performances. And there's a thing that's going to start happening soon with pop stars in the UK in 82. And it's something smash hits, I think, in the music media encourage. That desire to take clearly strange, otherworldly figures and bring them down to earth a bit. Mm. Boy George is great at that, talking about cups of tea yeah. and the day-to-day humdrum things that kind of everyone experienced in a mid-making these, these mad records. But, but Lee John 
can't do that. No, he no. still speaks urgently, even in 82, about how imagination music is total multimedia package almost, and every line needs to matter. And mm. as a multimedia package, imagine they're one of the all-time greatest Top of the Pops performers, I think. Yes. Although I may have forgotten it because I might be flicking over to the fucking footy, this is actually a really, really great performance. And like you say, it is. a brilliant start to the show. Yeah. It is. I agree with all of that, actually. I mean, you know, I was, it was a very, very style-conscious era was... Um, uh, the early 80s and I was like 1920 at that time so I was kind of you know very much into all of that but and I would never in a million years have dressed like imagination but I'd loved imagination and as I say they pulled it off because they knew exactly what they were doing you could tell that they knew exactly what they were doing you know they weren't sort of mm. like you know delusional about you know like looking kind of like suave and and you know, and like mm. sort of a million dollars or whatever, or anything like that. They knew what they were doing, and this is—you might say—it's a masterpiece of overstatement in a sense. Let's talk about the great unsung hero of early eighties pop, Ashley Ingram. Yeah, you know, he starts off the performance holding his bass in one hand with no strap, yeah. not making the slightest <laughs> effort to play it, and then halfway through, when the camera's off it, he just stashes it by yeah, the yeah. drum kit because he's it's getting in the way of his slinking about. Yeah. And yeah, like you've mentioned, he's got those white American football pad things on with them big silver balls that you get on cakes that break your teeth. And he's teamed that up with gold Sinbad trousers. Mm. And of course, you've got Errol Kennedy on the drums. He doesn't come from behind the drum kit this time, which is a bit of a shame. Mm. Imagination were always the black smoky yeah, one there. Yeah, that did happen. You know, the drummer's <laughs> got to come up and get get up the front near the end of the song. That doesn't happen in this case, but he's quite tastefully got on a, a white jacket and a matching scarf draped over his shoulders, but just over some tight black pants mm. not bothered to put a shirt on or any trousers because hey is in imagination yeah well this isn't a simulacra of performance it's 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 no, theater not at all it's theater yeah it's this unity yeah. of theater and stage and performance presentation plus the music i mean mm. one of the great quotes merrill actually when he's asked about imagination costumes um he goes we worry about it a lot we really think about it what are we going to wear next? And will they let us wear it? I love yes. that. You know, yes. It's, it's as important yeah. as the song. Definitely, yeah. Oh, when imagination come on, you're always going to wonder what they'd get away with this time. Yeah, which is, of course, an inbuilt dwindling returns thing. They can't keep doing this. But no. for the two years where they were there, fuck me, yeah. what, one of the greatest British pop groups ever for those couple of years, just for those Top of the Pops appearances. I mean, mm. I, I, I'm sure the albums are great. But nothing is as mind-melting as Top of the Pops delivered into your room, your little provincial room at 7.30 mm. in the evening with this. I mean, it's just miraculous, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Um, and, of course, Errol's got some right familial grief going on at the minute because his sister, Grace, mm. who's got her own show on BBC Two has just married a millionaire, has been in the papers having a go at Errol yeah. and his band for their provocative image. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if, if you're embarrassing your little sister on the telly, then <laughs> you've won at life, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the only time in history that black men can caper about like this and have a successful career, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Nowadays, if you want to be black and camp, you've got to be like RuPaul and just push the boat right out and just make it glaringly obvious to everyone. Mm. Yeah. I've been trying to think what's come close to imagination in this century. And the, the only thing I can think of yeah. is um, peer pressure. That collective from Alabama who um, did videos where they 
took turns to give an Ottoman a scene to to some landfill R and B about fifteen years ago. You ever seen that? No. Now, I I, no. When I say Ottoman, I don't mean some poor bloke mm. in a fez and a big moustache. Yeah. You know the actual yeah, yeah. item of furniture. It's uh, <laughs> interesting and disturbing. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, there's a lot of artists now who I think I'm not saying they could fill imagination shoes. Who could? But there's a lot of flamboyant gay black performers right now who would make fucking amazing top oh, of pop really? performances. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think of Mickey Blanco and other people, gay rappers. I mean, now that the back mm. of that has been broken, I mean, I remember when, you know, a gay rapper was the subject of rumour in the yes. community. Oh, there's a gay rapper out there. It's Pudgy the Fat Bastard or whoever it might. It might have mm. been that week. When I think of The Ones, Flawless, for instance, a video from this century, it's filled with imagination-type visuals. So there's a load of these artists, but of course... That centrality, that that breaking into people's lives who don't want it in their lives, mm. which is so important yeah. to these mind-melting top-of-the-pops moments. Yeah. No, these people have a fan base and they can quite happily exist in the margins without gate-crashing the mainstream. And that's mm. where those people are at the moment. But that's the thing about Lee John. I think Lee John and Imagination, they remember British pop introducing things into your life that yeah, just changed your life. And they want to do that with imagination. With every single Top of the Pops appearance they do, they want to do that. That yeah, yeah, yeah. is never recoverable again. Yeah. But, you know, we talk about queerness and, in a sense, you know, as print shows, you can have male queerness without necessarily homosexuality. Mm, it's, mm. you know, and I think that's actually really, really quite interesting, you know, when you have that. When I was on the school playground, um, getting into the, the usual hot debating topic of the day, which was, who on telly's gay? Yeah, yeah. Imagination never came up. <laughs> Yeah. Because it was like, well, they're black. Black people aren't gay, are they? (laughs) Yeah, there was the blackness. There was also the sheer henchness Mm. of, um, not Lee, but, you know, Errol and Ashley were big. And they they were hench. They were muscly. They were big Mm. (laughs) he-men. Of course, now, even me saying that sounds camp. But at the time, no, that wouldn't have been associated with gayness to me. Gayness... Which, you know, as a 70s or 80s British kid, you learn ostensibly from parody and sitcoms yeah. mm. was a limp-wristed effect thing. It wasn't this. It, it was Sylvester or that bloke in that uh, ill-advised late series of um, Alf Garnet. Do you remember when he has the... Uh... Oh, oh, God, yeah. Marigold, yeah. Marigold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Marigold. yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, he was yeah. brilliant. Anything else to say about this? No, it's just fucking ace. And it is so good that it does take your eye off the zoo wankers who are just all mm. around them uh, yeah. doing their usual cuntish yomp. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There's there's two occasions in this episode where zoo wankers are present, but you either forget about them or fuck me, they're made to look old-fashioned and shit. Yes. And this is the first. Yes. Mm. That hip-hop and dance review section in this week's NME that we talked about earlier, yeah. the reviewer mentions that Justin illusion is the second most played single he hears on the ghetto blasters after planet rock so yeah they're making a bit of a dent in america as well yeah and the thing is with imagination is that sort of deeply political without being in any way political mm. in a way <laughs> they're kind of you know I, I, I remember a lot of interviews with Lee John where he's talking people expect them to be more ethnic is the term that he used right at a time when don't forget reggae is being kind of employed as the expressive voice of the black man if you like mm. um, people are expecting imagination to have something to say but of course imagination's point is that the freedom they're exerting in what they look like and what they sound like, that's a statement in itself, basically, um, that's really important. So the following week, Music and Lights dropped one place to number six. 
Although the LP In the Heat of the Night entered the album chart at number 9 at the beginning of September and would eventually get to number 7, the title track and next single took six weeks to struggle up to number 22 and they never bothered the top 20 ever again. In 1987, after their last four singles flopped, Ashley Ingram and Errol Kennedy left the band, leaving Lee John to get ringers in and they straggled on until 1992 when they split up. Oh, that rubbish decade wasn't meant for one as beautiful yeah. as you, imagination. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. from imagination well the highest new entry in this week's chart straight in at four is from the award-winning motion picture fame some three years old which has spawned a successful television series here's irene cara singing the title Surrounded by members of City Farm and one youth with a sensible parting and cheap-looking sunglasses skillfully pivots towards a single that's been knocking around for three years but has smashed into the charts this week, Fame by Irene Cara. We've already covered the former Irene Escalara in chart music number 53 when Flashdance, What a Feeling, appeared in the Christmas 83 Top of the Pops and this is her debut single. It was co-written by Michael Gore, Leslie Gore's little brother, and the lyricist Dean Pitchford, who'd worked with Stephen Schwartz, Alan Menken and Rupert Holmes, and it was originally released in America in May of 1980 as part of the soundtrack of the film version of Fame, and got all the way to number four on the Billboard chart in the summer of 1980, while doing absolutely fuck all over here. A year later, while Cara was working on a sitcom which didn't get out of the pilot stage, NBC commissioned a TV version of Fame and Cara was invited to reprise her role of Coco Hernandez, but turned it down in order to focus on a recording career. After becoming a ratings hit in America at the beginning of 1982, the first episode was broadcast three weeks ago today and became an immediate smash amongst the leotard-crazed youngsters. 
That encouraged RSO to re-release Cora's single before BBC Records, the owners of the UK rights to the tunes from the TV show, could put out the TV theme, which had been recorded by Erica Gimple, Cora's replacement. It entered the charts last week at number 51, but this week it soared 74 places to number 4, the highest new entry on the top 40. Instead of running the original video or giving Zoo the opportunity to jump up and down on a mini metro, (laughs) the BBC have opted to run an extended clip from the film where Bruno's taxi-driving dad sets up some speakers on his cab and plays the song outside the school. Oh, chaps. There will be a video on top of the pops with Irene walking about Times Square, but we've got this for now, which is giving off some severe screen test vibes to me. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm expecting Michael Rod to pop up at any time asking some youths what colour Leroy shorts were. (laughs) And it's got that courtesy of MGM subtitles to it as well, hasn't it? Mm. Yeah, which is, you know, pretty nice because this clip is essentially an advert for the film, Mm -hmm. which is being re-released in UK cinemas tomorrow and will be competing with the likes of History of the World Part 1, The Coal Miner's Daughter, Georgia's Friends, Firefox, Partners, Some Kind of Hero, Countryman, and Honeymoon Swedish Style. Mm. (laughs) A lot of crisp bread action in that last one, I'll be bound. (laughs) I I would have pretty much detested this at the time. Of course you would, Well, Not necessarily out of um, humanlessness, although a bit out of humanlessness. There are various things that that still stick in my craw. I mean, that whiny guitar sound is my least favourite sound in all of pop and rock. It's just insipid. It feels kind of entitled. I don't know. It just sort of signifies all manner of awfulness. (laughs) I mean, it's strange that the whole vibe about fame, you know, it seems to imply, you know, that there's a strong kind of multi-ethnic sort of sensibility, a Sesame Street-ish sort of thing, you know, community activity, dance, blacks, white, Puerto Ricans, everyone just a freaking, you know, halting the traffic, subverting commerce, (laughs) you know, in their leg warmers, you know, upsetting the rabbis, all that. You know, that that there is something that's kind of somehow sort of socialistic and subversive about it. But of course, every single, it's not just this, Irene Cara song but other songs which does it's all about individualist ethos and it just felt mm. a little bit sinister really a, a, a sort of transatlantic cultural exchange is you know between Thatcherism and Reaganism is just beginning to come into force and it's coming through in the popularity I think of things like this really you know, and it's yeah. it's a bit like when somebody once described the difference between European feminists and American feminism that European feminism is about like how women in communities can kind of like you know raise themselves as communities and as a part of a wider community and in America it's all about it's all individuality, how I can succeed, how I can break through. Mm. It's all very, very individualistic. You know, the dream, hold on to your dream, you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah. That's what makes it, in a way, for me, slightly more insidious, that it's wrapped up in this kind of likability, this amiability, this sense of young people doing their thing as a collective. Mm. And it doesn't really feel like it's actually about that at all. It feels like there's a sort of propaganda is being kind of not too subtly smuggled in at the lyrical level. Yeah. Completely. I mean, Neil, you coined this, didn't you, last episode? The genre of music that I believe is up there with white pyjama music and yacht rock. <laughs> Dancy Reagan. <laughs> mm. Mm. 
And this might not be the first example of that genre, but it's definitely the one that broke the dam. Oh, think? I think in, in a weird way. I mean, it's a very meta start to Top of the Pops. This. We've got Imagination singing about pop. We've got Car- Irene Cara singing about fame. But crucially, where Imagination seemed to be quite 1982, this... In a totally ghastly way, it could also tell the story of kind of 83 and 84 and 85. And it, because yeah. it, it foregrounds mm. that American notion, as, as David's been saying, this lie of meritocratic fame. You know, yeah. it, in the UK, fame is seen as miraculous and random in a lot of ways. In the US, powerfully, especially in the dancicles um, that this would birth, you know, and, and you could argue actually that this song is a very stagey, dry run for flash dance in which yeah. cinema and pop totally cross over. This still has a kind of jazz handy staginess that remember, remember bits are very, very stagey. Mm. But there is this neatly kind of Reaganite idea that combines, as David said, this dissolution of differences between people towards this capitalist mindset of, of work bringing reward yeah so yeah. so it's all about really the only thing holding you back is your laziness yes and yes. and this deeper suggestion i think that the vast majority of lives are anonymous and mortal and that the only way to make your life immortal to have people remember your name and live forever and see you and die is to gain this mm. celebrity which is utterly detached from the ability to change the audience but entirely sort of down to your own messianic zeal about your own ego the the enemy for a song like this much as it is throughout sort of reaganite conservative culture to this day really is self-doubt an absence of self-doubt is a triumph in itself for a song like this um and we're about to hit it really badly i mean we're two years away from the la um olympics right which i remember being the first time i heard usa being used as a chant um, yeah. You know, we're close to Top Gun. We're close to the second Rambo film. You know, do we get to mm. win this time? When he dances on a tank. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but, but the film, I think we've discussed this last time we talked about fame. You know, it is quite 70s grit. And it, it, it's the film at least contains the suggestion that dreams can get derailed by reality. And that, you know, yes. your race, your gender can have an effect on that. The misreading that the TV series does of the film is very akin to the way that US culture in general say misread something like Born in the USA but Mm. like that song this song seems to invite that misreading and the video backs up all of this I'm just kind of disappointed there is a performance of fame by Irene Cara on top of the pops later on I think um, right. Perhaps when it climbs up the charts a bit more, I'm sure I didn't dream this. Where you know to Hollywoodify it and make sure that we know this is a big Hollywood thing. She's singing it in front of a backdrop, basically of posters for Star Trek: Wrath of Khan. Um, right. and it's a really, really <laughs> odd performance. Know. That, yeah. but um, yeah, now everything that David said, really oddly enough, though, you know. Two years after it's been created in 1980, it already seems really dated, doesn't it? It sounds like fucking prog rock roller disco or something. Yes, (laughs) definitely. You know, the other songs (laughs) from the album or whatever, you know, High Fidelity, Star Maker, they just cement that. So a Mm. bit of a a bit of a come down, to be honest with you, after imagination. But I'm only saying that now as a kid, you know. The, the scheduling was obviously really important for fame, the TV series. That is why mm. it got so big. And its international success became really important to the sh- show itself. I think it, if it had just remained an American yeah. show, 
it probably would have died the death within a couple of years. But it oh, they've gone after one series. Yeah, but it keeps going till nineteen eighty fucking seven. Yes, because of its international popularity. Well, I mean, the BBC love having this on because they're screening an advert for a film, but they're also screening an advert for a TV show that's going to be on right after this episode of Top of the yes. Pops. Mm. Yes, indeed. Fame's doing really well at the minute because it's kept the audience at Top of the Pops for another 45, 50 minutes. Yeah. You know, yeah, so yeah. they're getting, I think they're getting slightly more than Top of the Pops. So, you know, the Emmerdale crowd have pitched in. And, of course, being on at the same time as the World Cup, mm. there's going to be a lot of, lot of people who have gone, oh, okay, I might as well watch this then instead of the dishy soccer men. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, part of the appeal of this, just like the part, I mean, the massive appeal of all American TV shows in this period, especially when you're a kid, is just this is what you think America is like. Yes. You know, whether Definitely, it's this yeah. or the fucking Dukes of Hazard or Cagney and Lacey, whatever you're watching, this is what you think America is like. Yes. Uh, by the way, do you know what the most popular show in the UK was at the time? No, Ooh. I don't know. To the Manor Ball. Was it an American show? Was it an American show? No, oh. no, it wasn't an American Blankety show. Blank. I, I have no idea. No idea. The biggest non-film TV audience last month was thirteen point one million viewers yeah. for Crossroads. Fuck me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the counter narrative. Yes. <laughs> so it's not all about American dreams. So the the clip that we see, um, mm. it's essentially the world's first flash mob, isn't it? Mm. It's the scene where Bruno's overproud taxi driving dad decides to rig up a PA on his car and park up outside the school and blast out his son's demo, which, you know, wouldn't be embarrassing to you at all, would it? <laughs> I mean, imagine if your dad had parked his car up outside your school, Neil, and, and read out your... Um, Early reviews. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, father! He complains, doesn't he? He says, "This is just this is just a demo. This isn't finished yet." And he's like, yeah. "So we're getting fobbed off with an unfinished version, then, are we? You know, and it's all it's <laughs> not finished yet." Exactly, David. That's right. We'll come back when it's finished. Then the pop craze youngsters would have been absolutely thrown. <laughs> at the release of this single, because this isn't the theme to the TV show, which to my mind is a superior version, because Erica Gimple sounds mm. like a woman still learning her craft, while right. Cora sounds like Donna mm. Summer, like she always mm. does. Yeah, yeah. And you don't get bangy stick woman telling you you've got big dreams, you've got fame, mm. and fame mm. costs, and right as you start paying in sweat. Yeah. We don't get no sweat. No, you don't get no sweat. You get a tiny hint of the aggravation that actually happens in the film when yes. the scene happens. Because it ends badly, doesn't it? As it may, far as it I ends extremely badly for Yeah, the cops for come Coco. and break it all up. You're with a, yeah, absolutely yeah. It ends badly yeah. for Coco. But um thank I, I mean, mean we get a, a fight between two taxi drivers. We get a lot of why I ought to mm. with a, with a yeah. proper Hollywood yeah, yeah, smack yeah, yeah, in yeah. the face as well. You know, that, that yeah. no, you know, it never sounds like that when you actually punch somebody in the face. Not that I would know, because I don't, you know. It could have been so much mm. worse, because they could have chosen the clip from the actual TV mm. show. Mm. Which, on a weekly basis, to be honest with you, served you up some fucking atrocious bits. Mm. Oh, yes. I fell down a YouTube rabbit hole with this, and I found the Shol, 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 Shorovsky clip. Yes! Of Bruno. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. You've got to put that on the on the yeah. playlist, I think, this week. What's he going to say? A- have a nice day. <laughs> oh, God, it's just fucking awesome. Awful, man. <laughs> I can't believe this shit used to entertain me, but it did. Oh, oh it did. It entertained used, everyone. I used to stay on BBC One after Top of the Pops to watch Fame. There's no yeah, denying yeah. it. Yeah. Another small thing about this is I mentioned previously in a uh, you know chart music episode about you know the old sort of checkered black and white thing down south of the New York cabs, and 
you know, yeah. that was such a wonderful signifier of New York in the early 80s and Definitely. ZE records mm-hmm. or Z records, all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, mm-hmm. and it turns out, and I read about, you know, what, you know, and at the time I thought, what mean-spirited cancer refusal said, no, we can't be having that anymore. Um, we've got a surplus of yellow mm-hmm. paint or whatever. But, yeah, it's just, that's just market forces got rid of it. It was some firm in Philadelphia um, who were producing, you know, these, these checkered cabs, and it was just no longer feasible for them to uh, carry on operating, you know, and it's just ridiculously sad as a result, you know, mm-hmm. because the free market, you know, and Reaganism is all, that, you know, you lose something as kind of small but joyful as that. Yeah. The other main difference between the Irene Cora version and the Erica Gimple version is that Irene Cora sings, people will see me and die, mm-hmm. whereas Erica Gimple says, people will see me and cry. Oh. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. that's nothing to brag about. <laughs> <laughs> Is it? Really? Mm. Cry is at least ambiguous. You can cry in joy, you know. Whereas you, yeah. you know, um, people see me and die. Yeah. That is a weird line, isn't it? Well, it's like see Naples and die, isn't it? I guess so, yeah. But yeah, it basically implies that after you've seen Irene Cora, there's nothing left in life to enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But but even, you know, the dancing in this, as is about to be revealed by something coming up on the episode, is in itself so fucking dated. Oh, it really is. I was watching, um, th- there's one thing I used to illustrate the way that white culture commercialises and blams out black culture or black innovation, and it's mm. two clips from the 50s. It's Little Richard doing Tutti Frutti on telly, and yeah. then Pat Boone doing yeah. it two, two years later. Yeah. And... Yeah, this is kind of what's going on here. Um, it's street dance that looks a fuck of a lot like ballet, basically. Oh, yeah, it's just um, goes skinny girls doing plies or whatever yeah, off, yeah, exactly. off a Cadillac or something. <laughs> it just annoys me seeing people dancing on cars. Mm-hmm. What, in all circumstances? I don't know. <laughs> now you've put that in my head, I'm trying to think of a good example of a dance on a car. I can't think of a good one. I, my mind can't get past Nicolas Cage dancing on a car in a fucking annoying way. Yeah. Yeah. Good car dancing. Does it happen? Janet Jackson, When I Think of You, isn't there something that? Oh, yeah. Oh, there we go then. Mm. Does Grease Lightning piss you off as well? No, not at all, because they're doing something constructive. (laughs) You know what I mean? They've got to be on that car to do what they're supposed to be doing. If they want to have a bit of a dance along the way, then who am I to stop them? (laughs) But this is essentially what everyone under 30 thinks the 80s was like all the time. Mm. And I've got yeah. to say, if there are any younger listeners to chart music, number one, why? What's up with you? <laughs> Go out and have sex or something while you can. <laughs> and, and number two, no, it mm. was never like that. We never no. danced on cars. Yeah. So the following week, fame would fly high <laughs> to the very summit of Mount Pop, staying there for three weeks before giving way to Come On Eileen by Dex's Midnight Runners, although it would take another five weeks before it was dislodged from the top ten, by which time the BBC Records LP The Kids From Fame had begun its 12-week run as the number one LP in the UK. Although Cora's follow-up, Out Here On My Own Tonight, only got to number 58 in September of this year, Fame would go on to sell 1.1 million copies over here, the second biggest single of 1982, one behind Come On Eileen, and one ahead of a single that we're going to deal with very soon. And she'd roar back in 1983 when Flashdance, What A Feeling, got to number two in July of that year year taken from a film which was written by dean pitchford the lyricist of this single is so incestuous chaps mm. 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 
ago, Jeffrey Daniels from Shalimar danced his way onto the program, and we've had hundreds of letters from people asking for him back. Well, he is back, moving to his music, A Night to Remember. Kid, back amongst more members of City Farm, warns us that we're going to get more American stuff later on, before reminding us that social history was made in this studio a fortnight ago. And we're going to get another taste of it with the next single, A Night to Remember, by Shalimar. Formed in Los Angeles in 1976, Shalimar was originally a concept created by Dick Griffey and Don Cornelius, the booking agent and producer-presenter of the American music show Soul Train, which put out a medley of Motown classics over a disco beat called Uptown Festival in early 1977, which got to number 25 on the Billboard chart and number 30 over here in May of that year. Inspired by its chart placing, Griffey formed a vocal trio to perform under the name and picked out two regular dancers from Soul Train, Jodie Watler and Jeffrey Daniel. They joined Gary Mumford, one of the singers on Uptown Festival, but after he bailed out a year later and his replacement left a year after that, Howard Hewitt was folded in. And the first single with the definitive Shalimar lineup, Take That to the Bank, put them back in the charts, getting to number 20 in January of 1979. This single... The follow-up to I Can Make You Feel Good, which got to number seven in May of this year, is the second cut from their six LP Friends, which came out in January. It entered the charts five weeks ago at number 49, and two weeks later it got up to number 25, and Top of the Pops came a-knocking. With Jodie Watley being stuck at home being pregnant and the group being on hiatus, the logical option was to stick on the video. But when Michael Hurl was made aware that Jeffrey Daniel was in London doing promo work and hoovering up influencers from the club scene and the King's Road, he invited him on a fortnight ago to dance to the single on top of the pops. Daniel responded by turning up in a new haircut and performed a body-popping routine he'd knocked up in his hotel room the night before, which featured a move he called the backslide, which involved travelling backwards whilst giving the impression of moving forwards. And the pop-crazed youngsters went berserk! While the single jumped eight places to number 17 the following week, the BBC were bombarded with letters from the body pop craze youngsters, panting for them to repeat the performance. But Hurl, God bless him, has tracked down Shalimar's management, who were with Daniel in Amsterdam, and begged them to drag him back for an encore. And this week, after the singles jumped another 11 places to number 6, here he is again. And before we move into it, Kid's fallen into the unnecessary S-trap there, hasn't he? A, a rare misstep on his part. Jeffrey Daniels. Yeah, yeah a little misstep, yeah. I was, wasn't quite sure his heart was 100% in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he brightens up considerably for the next one. But uh, yeah, I, 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 look, I, I, I saw that time... 
I absolutely, absolutely loved it. Um, mm. I, I know, particularly the first performance. I may have missed this one. Looking at it now, it's great. It's really, really good. And obviously, yeah. it's technically wonderful. It's just a little bit alternative car park in places. Uh, <laughs> really sort of, um, walking down the imaginary staircase, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. the limbo manoeuvres. And yeah. I don't think he quite pulls off the moonwalk, not to the extent that, like, Michael Jackson, who obviously famously copied it from him, does. But um, this was absolutely far and away the coolest thing on the block um, was Shalimar in my world you know, mm. it's transatlantic, it's robo, romo-funk, it's contemporary, it's electronic, it's rockless and I think there's a real bonus the sense that like Jeffrey Daniels and to an extent um, Jodie Watley actually, they connected with the sort of the whole new romantic, you know, the fashion thing, the club thing mm. that was happening in London and it affected their appearance how I didn't quite get it really no. uh, sort of affect him but um because I was always disappointed at this time I was just like listening to so much music coming out of like New York whatever in the early 80s um in, in, in this particular style you know and um the appearances of the you know which was you know I, I took deeply to heart you know the appearances of the people making it didn't they felt like they were still in the sort of 1977 vibe basically mm-hmm. you know too many sort of flares and big open shirts and all that and medallions and you know, and wrong hair, you know, for for my liking, and moustaches and what have you. Mm. But no, I mean, you can see that Jeff Dunton has been really affected by that kind of sensibility of what's happening in London on the club scene. He's going out, and um, I, you know, and I love that, and I felt it's, um, you know, I felt there was a kind of a reaching out there that was going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's absolutely true, that, and I didn't realise until much later on when a lot of the um, Soul Train footage was released onto YouTube of just what a great dancer. Jodie Watley was as yeah. well, and just how how yeah. brilliantly they worked in tandem. You know, they, they just do these kind of wonderfully kind of like sprightly routines. At one point, they pretend to have a fight, you know, and she sort of pretends to punch him out, and then everybody else. And 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 you just sense that, like, I mean, a lot of the sort of soul train dancers were pretty game, but they just weren't at that level. And I think that one or two of them sort of bridled a little bit at these two, um, you know, frankly, sort of brilliant youngsters showing them up on the old Soul Train line mm. or whatever. But, I uh, mean, the original yeah. performance of this is, it's the definitive Starman moment of the early 80s to my mind. And yeah. I'm going to go further, yeah. Chaps. I, I believe this is even more influential than the Starman moment because, you know, yeah, yeah. Bowie encouraged the youth in 1972 to experiment with hair dye and eyeshadow, but he never got them to perform Kabuki theatre in a shopping precinct on a Saturday afternoon, <laughs> did it? Yeah. This was so fucking influential. Yeah, oh, massively. Yeah. I mean, and that's what's remarkable because it's such a happenstance thing to happen. It's just down the hill making mm. a phone call. Yeah. You know, but body popping, when we first saw it as kids, it was fucking miraculous. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. miraculous. Yeah. It was like, like hip hop in a sense. What was exciting about it was that it looked mental and great and amazing. How do I do this? But it seemed self-sufficient. You just yeah. needed to crack the trick, the magic, and you could do it. Yes. And it, it didn't seem like something, I mean, obviously it probably was, but it didn't seem like something you needed to put years of effort into learning. It wasn't mm. like fucking juggling or something. No. It, it was what was exciting about body popping, especially for little kids, I think, was that it was almost like an attempt to, um, how can I put it, to sort of cartoonify human flesh. Yes. It was, it was like replicating robot moves 
it was a massive nod to pop culture. We'd grown up watching cartoons of robots and things like that. Mm. And that kind of liquid metal kind of thing. Uh, perhaps I'm going too far, but it's only, of course, later you realise as a kid how it emerges from things like the electric boogaloo and that idea of a human body without bones. And, of mm. course, Jeffrey Daniel has been popping on Soul Train, if you like, for years. He, he yeah. says he's been mm. doing it from 78. But the crucial thing is taking it from Soul Train to Top of the Pops, that is a massive move, not just in yeah. UK dance culture, in UK playground culture. Yeah. And it proves, again, yeah. the centrality of Pop and Top of the Pops to young people in the UK. Mm. And what's really telling about, even though this is the second iteration of this, what we are seeing here isn't just this amazing dance routine. We're ultimately seeing the past kind of fading away, including yeah. the past of dance that's indicated by a show like Fame. Yes. That's yeah, dying. Yeah, yeah, and this totally. new age is being born. Of course, there's still a BBC-ness to things that can mm. never be avoided. They've, you've got that strange random floor manager guy walking past towards yes. the left <laughs> at the beginning. You've got that strange shot from between a guy's legs where you half think a knackersack might start swinging from the top of yeah, the screen that bit looks like he's humping up towards absolutely poor old jeffrey but it feels yeah. so distinctly new and and my mm. god how yeah. shit does zoom look yeah yes yeah. during this yeah i remember not to preempt any you know what are we talking about the playground stuff but everyone every time this appeared you you just have your minds blown yeah and you'd have discussion about how we did it yes mm. i remember talking yeah. with my friends about this and like some of them were always like, oh, on wheels or he's on, <laughs> he's on oil or some shit like that it was a proper proper mystery yeah it was so cool and you wanted to know how we did it like david said i do think mj does the backslide slash moonwalk better mm. i think mj's just a better more fluid dancer and he has the extra mm. aura of fucking being michael jackson yes. for christ's sake so that truly blows yeah. minds yeah. but i recall this blowing a lot of minds as well now in the original performance of course he accentuates the oddity of the backslide with that final moment where i think he's handcuffed isn't yes. he? And, he, and he backslides off mm. here the gimmicks are a tad force the drinking of a cup of tea yeah and the yeah. umbrella snowstorm and all that but it's still pure mm. magic my jaw would have yeah. dropped watching this the original performance it really helped that he was introduced by dave lee travis who by this time <laughs> is looking like an absolute relic of the 70s yes his yes. beard's starting to go a bit grey at the edges, and he just looks like Anne Widdicombe's crotch by this time. <laughs> um, you know, he's got 14 more episodes in him, and he's looking more out of yeah. place as time goes on. And yeah, yeah, yeah. The Golden Oldie yeah. Picture Show is beckoning him. So to set him aside, yeah. Jeffrey Daniel, fucking hell. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, yeah, fuck yeah, Travis. Yeah. Let's talk about this. Yeah, I can definitely see how Neil... You know, being at school at the time, how he would have, there would have been a real direct playground mm, impact. Definitely. I'm absolutely yeah. sure. I was at Oxford and uh, there wasn't a lot of body hot <laughs> the, uh, for college quad. But, um, didn't you have a varsity breakdance crew? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the blue ribbon massive but actually there was this stuff was going on or at least the sort of body point thing at um, when I started doing a club in Oxford about 82, mm. 83 there was, a, there was a whole you know a bunch of sort of local geezers came in and um, you know did the whole sort of moves to pretty much everything whether it was in Two Made Juicy Fruit you know it was all you know it, whatever it was you know it didn't have to be electro frunk no god yeah. no yeah, you yeah. learn how to do it you just got to do it all the fucking time aren't you yeah mm. or Lee Warehouse when he had things like um, the electric tees what was it ET phone yes. home you know you know that electro fuck the other thing like that you know that was just so it, it really was happening and i just couldn't do it i just stood and watched and admired basically i think there is also a connection i maybe i've mentioned this before on, on chart music but it's worth reiterating the context of something like this the attraction of 
you know, young African-Americans to things like craft work, to things like automation, mm-hmm. to these kind of like futuristic things, which a lot of people decry as mechanical and soulless and why you're sort of performing soul like you did back in the old days or whatever. And I think, you know, there is a link between, you know, the, the attraction of, of futurism and black people. I mean, you think about how nostalgic sort of white rock and pop culture is, you know, and mm. a lot of it's, you know, the subtext, you know, weren't the 50s good? Weren't the 60s mm-hmm. good? Weren't the mm. 70s memorable? Were they? And, you know, black people want to say, not for us, they mm. fucking well were. Yeah. Um, you know, and so there's perhaps you know, sometimes a disinclination to dwell on a past that was like full of like strife and the struggle for civil rights or whatever. The present ain't all that great either, but the future, maybe. Yeah. yeah, we're only a couple of years away from like Model 500, no UFO, you know, I mean, mm. it all feeds in, definitely. This is the year that Shalomar absolutely blew up in the UK. Mm. That was down to them, and Daniel in particular, coming over here and just sucking in the new pop aesthetic. Uh, in an interview with Smash Hits this year, he essentially laid it all out, and he said, when I watched Top of the Pops for the first time, it was pause abc they were something i'd never seen before right. white guys in gold mm. lame suits doing all these choreographed steps with a funk backing bow wow wow imagination mark almond they all had their own concepts which is yeah. something you don't get in the states everyone just hears a guitar yeah. lick on someone else's album and thinks that's great we'll rip it off mm. english acts on the other hand are genuine <laughs> Wow. And you you can actually see how quickly he's picked it up because on the cover of this single, he's still in 1979. He's got an afro and leather trousers on. It's fucking amazing. Let's break down the routine then. So it starts off with a load of zoo wankers, but they eventually part to reveal Daniel Mm -hmm. rising from behind a table with a Shalimar logo on it, essentially reprising his role as a barman in the video. Mm. Then he does the walking downstairs bit and then he comes up via an imaginary spiral staircase. He does the backslide because that was expected of him. Yeah. I mean, he's doing the backslide behind the table so you can't see what his feet are doing, which is what everyone would be watching yes. at this point. Yes. So he's teasing us. And when he comes round from the table, he looks like he's come from the future. Mm. He's got these amazingly complicated red and white trousers tucked into white socks. And he's got a Roy Lichtenstein-esque image of an anti-aircraft gun going rat a yeah. on a mm-hmm. sleeveless T-shirt. Mm-hmm. A month later, I was watching him on some Channel 4 show, and he had a similar T-shirt on that just said jam with about five A's in it. And I just thought, <laughs> fucking yes, he's a Wellerite too. <laughs> and he's surrounded by the zoo wankers who tried to dance along with him, but it just looks mm. like a pub team playing keepy up next to Maradona, doesn't it? Oh, gotcha. Eventually he's they give up. blown them out yeah. of the water. It's one of those great things where the right 80s throws into relief the wrong 80s. Absolutely. The zoo yeah. Oh, God, the yes. The crowd. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, it's quite interesting. It's quite... In t- to Top of the Pops' credit here, it's actually quite an adventurous play around with the format. Mm. I mean, you know, on Hurl's part, to sort of have to do something like this. Yeah. Because if I think of all the great previous Top of the Pops moments, like the Starman thing or, or um, Sparks' this town, it big enough that both of us, they're, they're just things that occur within the format of the show. Then here, they've actually sort of, you know, been quite imaginative in terms of the format and said, yeah, why not do this? Yeah. yeah. And, and it's a course- throwback to Ready, Steady, Go and that, isn't it? Because it's like saying, look, mm. here's the new dancer everyone's talking mm. about. Here's how you do it. Yeah, yeah, well, here's how you do it. But the thing is, like you say, out, we of course, as kids, we're like craning our necks close to the television, trying to look at his fucking feet. Like, yeah. how does he do this shit? But even beyond the backslide and the moonwalk, there's actually a more, even more mysterious moment in this where he, mm. he sort of revolves. Yes. And 
I, I swear down, like as a kid, I remember looking at his feet. Of course, this is pre-video and everything like that, so mm. you couldn't re-watch it. I watched it again, obviously, for the purposes of chart music. Still can't figure it out. Cannot figure out how he does this stuff. No. That's true magic. And that stays with you in a big, big, big way. There, there's this revolving mm. thing he does. He like turns circles and he's moving like a robot whilst he's doing it. Seemingly yeah. not moving his feet. How the fuck yeah. is he doing it? I this know. is before mm. the days of, you know, you can buy trainers with wheels in them. So yes. It's a real mystery. A real <laughs> mystery. And we can see Kid in the background watching on at the beginning as he yeah, trances yeah. everyone else. But halfway through, we see him talking to someone out of shot and laughing. I uh, don't know what that's about. I wonder what they can see behind that. Well, I know that he's just doing the walking down fake stairs stuff. Mm. But it's exciting seeing that, that some people have access to what the fuck he's doing behind that screen. Mm. But yeah, like David said, it is weird, isn't it? It's a totally different thing for Top of the Pops. Yeah. Having this like almost a magician's table. Yes. Distinctly odd, but because of that, unforgettable. Mm. So he does the backslide with an umbrella while someone blows confetti at him with a fan and then he Mm. goes into the only bit of the routine that I didn't like when he he does the thing with a teacup and saucer you know an actual teacup and saucer that's on the Mm. on the table because I felt patronised as a British person yeah yeah that was definitely for the British (laughs) definitely yeah yeah. I mean I remember the other year in the Women's World Cup and I got really into it you know and I was really up for appreciating the the skill and flair of the American team when they played Mm. England but then that woman did a goal celebration by mimsily drinking a cup of tea and crooking a little finger and I just thought ah fuck off you bastard I know I really wanted one of our players to score and then pretend to be morbidly obese and shoot loads of school kids that would have fucking taught them they're absolutely obsessed Americans I remember interviewing bands and they keep making jokes about tea and high tea and something that everything stops at four o'clock for high tea. I remember there was a trailer for, I think, when Frank Bruno fought Mike Tyson in America. Yeah. And it shows, like, Bruno, like, really kind of, you know, wailing away in a sparring session. Then a little butler rings a bell, ding, and everything pauses in mid-round so they can have high tea, you know, because Frank Bruno's English. And, uh. Then he backslides behind the bar, suckily shoes the zoo wankers out of the way mm. and then he descends behind it giving us a wave as he goes like you say David a lot of the stuff is just mime but he's done mm. the amazing thing of doing mime and, and not being a wanker yeah. that's yeah. incredible yeah, yeah. could you do any of these moves Al? no and I didn't even bother trying me neither yeah. I just thought well that's fucking brilliant I can't do that no this is mm. it I rapidly realised I couldn't do any of oh it. you had a go though um, Neil that's good everyone in the playground was having a go but you could figure out within 10 seconds oh shit did you have a crew no I did not have a crew Al oh. no I'm sorry but I didn't everyone had a go but no I realised rapidly mm. um, I couldn't I'm still jealous of the fact that Sophia can moon oh, no god yeah she can moon what Without a doubt. In fact, oh. she likes, if I'm telling her off, moonwalking away. Um, because she knows it <laughs> no, she knows it staggers what a fucking me. Insult. Well it's a good it's a good way of evading get her telling off, you know. Not just fucking off mm. with two fingers. No way of pursuing her, is there? You just have to stand there waving your fist. But backsliding away it leaves me struck dumb with both awe and anger. So um she uses <laughs> yeah. that a lot. Brilliant. Someone in Knotts made a documentary about breakdancing and body popping in Nottingham mm. called NG83. And I did an article for the newspaper I edited. I ended up meeting a lot of original members of the of the Rock City crew, the yep. very good but very unimaginably titled <laughs> yeah. breakdancing crew who played at Rock City and were based there. And I always asked them, you know, obvious first question, what what was it? What was the first, when was the first time you saw this and wanted to do this? And yeah. I just thought, well, okay, uh, Buffalo Girls, 
uh, Wild Style being uh, shown on yeah, Channel yeah. 4. But no, no, no. They all said the original performance of this. Mm. Wow. Jeffrey Daniel just fucking changed this country. Yeah. He did. Yeah. Yeah. He made the Weetabix breakdance, for fuck's sake. Yeah. <laughs> they stopped being racist biscuits and started spinning on their grains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because of Jeffrey Daniel, we got to see kids robot dancing on That's Life. Mm. <laughs> we got that advert for Right God with the bloke in the suit breakdancing. Yeah. Mm. And we got... I know what breakfast is all about. It's Ready Break. There ain't no doubt. Yeah. He made Ready Break cool, for yeah. fuck's sake. And the thing is, I mean, I know it's a sort of cliche. Hip-hop has these four pillars and all that. Mm. But there were sort of four different ways in, you mm. know? And you could be into graffiti. You could be into dancing. You could be into the music. We're about to hit a period where hip-hop is in danger in a sense of becoming not a fad, but a detail of pop. Yeah. rather than a genre to itself. Of course, down the pipe soon, we're going to have things like, yeah, white lines and message blowing our minds. And in a couple of years, we're going to have Houdini. But, mm. you know, this period, th- this was remarkable. And, yeah. it, and it seemed to sort of, yeah, open up possibilities. We obviously were not seeing wild style. We had to wait like fuck to watch that film. Yeah. But this was a glimpse of something that, and I, I think the promise of that, the excitement of that stayed with a lot of us. And it takes the focus right off the rest of the band. Mm. The one person in the band who doesn't take solos is the absolute front person of, of the band now. Mm. That must have pissed Howard off big style. <laughs> well, look at what we're talking about. We're talking about the dance. We're not... To- I mean, it's a fantastic record, of course. And we need to talk about it. And we need to talk about Shalimar, because Shalimar a fucking skill. Yeah. Mm. It doesn't get said enough. Mm. To all intents and purposes, a disco band who have gone post-disco. Is this single the follow-up to I Can Make You Feel Good? Yes. I mean, fuck me, what a run they're on. Yeah. Is this sounding slightly dated? No, not really. The futuristic dancing helps. It's a brilliant song, and people forget about it because there's there's so much shit around this song, good and bad. Yeah. At the time, this was held up as a as a prime example of Gary and Sharon music. Mm. You know the John Godber play, Bouncers? Mm. This is the song that the Sharons sing at the disco. Right. The prime example of, oh, disco, eh? Oh, good on the Sharons. Totally. And plus, it's, it's been chopped up a lot, this song, mm. to the point where the chorus becomes the thing that only people remember, mm. and the rest of it is forgotten about, yeah. because it gets used in adverts so much. But yes. it glides so yeah. beautifully. Yeah. It's such a beautiful Absolutely. song. Absolutely. And it's had such a long, long afterlife. Mm. You know, it had been played and heard countless times since 1982 in a way that, like, sort of precludes it from dating. It's up there with Boogie Wonderland as prime disco. Mm. Yeah. Totally. yeah. So the following week, a night to remember nipped up one place to number five, its highest position. The follow-up, There It Is, also got to number five in October, and they'd round off the year with friends getting to number 12 in December. In the meantime, tapes of both Daniel's performances were asked for by Michael Jackson, which resulted in Daniel linking up with him and teaching him the backslide, which he used in his performance of Billie Jean at the Motown 25th anniversary special in March of 1983 and called The Moonwalk. In 1984, after Shalimar split up, Daniel relocated to London, presenting 620 Soul Train for Channel 4, popping up in Give My Regards to Broad Street, being a train in Starlight Express, and releasing the single ACDC, which was written by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Richard Stilgo, and becoming Michael Jackson's choreographer in the late 
80s. Fucking hell. He went from this to Richard Stilgo. <laughs> <laughs> but the, co- the choreography yeah. in Bad and Smooth Criminal, which are the two videos I think he works on, are fucking amazing. So, you know, yes. good collaboration, mm. that. And in the early 90s, A Night to Remember was saddled with being the music for an advertising campaign for shaking Bernie in, Harvester Restaurants, but survived it. <laughs> because it is that fucking good. Shaking Indeed. Bernie. Let me just throw out two more things. If you've not seen Shalomar's performance on the tube at the end of this year, go on YouTube and do so. The version of A Night to Remember is fucking astonishing. Mm-hmm. Mm. And number two... Imagine if Zoo had formed a band. <laughs> Fuck. Fucking hell. Oh, my God. Oh. That's made a little bit of sitcom in my mouth. I'm sorry, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, this episode of Top of the Pops is putting the trainers to the anus. But unfortunately, we've got to stop there because this is too much for me. And if I've got to stop, alas, you have to stop as well. But don't forget, the pop craze patrons have already devoured this episode in full without any rubbish adverts. And if you want to get with them, you know what to do. Patreon.com slash chart music. Anyway... See you tomorrow for the next part. My name's Al Needham. They're David Stubbs and Neil Kulkarni. And you are staying pop crazed. (laughs) Chart music. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 